Broken trust can be healed, but it's not just time that's going to heal it. You need clear guidance about what to do and what not to do. I'm Jeff Stewart, licensed marriage and family therapist, and I've developed a free video course called The First Steps to Rebuilding Trust. This course will show you what's needed to begin healing after betrayal. I offer guidance for the betrayed partner as well as the partner who broke the trust. You can access it for free right now by clicking the link in the show notes. I'm Jeff Stewart, licensed marriage and family therapist, and I want to welcome you to my podcast, From Crisis to Connection. Each week on this podcast, my guests and I will give you and your loved ones resources and tools to heal from the crises of infidelity, pornography, abusive behaviors, and betrayal trauma. But we also talk about how to build and maintain healthy connection in your most important relationships. Thanks for listening. I'm so glad you're here. One thing I love doing on this podcast is inviting people to join me to talk about their personal stories of recovery and healing from sexually acting out behaviors, from betrayal trauma, from abuse, from all kinds of other challenges. There's something really powerful about stories. It helps us kind of place ourselves, helps us feel validated, helps us feel compassion, helps us get ideas and feel inspiration to keep going in our own work. It takes a tremendous amount of courage to tell your story. And I'm always grateful for anyone who's willing to do that. It can be a really scary thing to share things that are just really private and possibly even shameful. And so I'm really grateful to be joined today with someone who was willing to come in here and tell their own story. I'm joined by a man named Tim. He's actually a fellow therapist who reached out to me and said that he'd love to just talk about what he's learning in his recovery journey. His recovery journey has been going on for a lot of years, and he talks about how he's just tried lots of different things over the years, but never really fully got the traction that he really desired or wanted and struggled keeping things from his wife and was doing a lot of things that were pretty harmful. And about six months ago, everything came out again out of hiding and really took his marriage to the brink and realized that he needed to do some deeper healing. And so he changed things up and really worked to deepen his recovery efforts. And so Tim just wanted to come in here and talk about what he's learning and what he's gained over the past six months of this uh, this elevated recovery experience that he's been doing, where he's really been working a different type of recovery instead of the things that he was trying before. And so we talk about his journey. We talk about some of the things that he's learned around shame, coming out of hiding, and really making your recovery your own instead of doing it for the wrong reasons or doing it only for other people. I think it's important in the healing journey to hear stories from all along the path, all along the journey. So sometimes we have people in here that have been doing a lot of healing work for years and have achieved a level of peace or mastery that has been going on for some time. And there's people that are in the very beginning of their journey. And so Tim is one of those people that is probably somewhere in the middle. He's been doing this work and trying different things for a long time and has recently found something that's really working and helping him. But he's definitely not one of those people who believes at any for any stretch of the imagination that he's done or that he's arrived. And I really do appreciate hearing stories from people that are in the middle of their process and are willing to talk openly about it. Tim has asked us to protect his privacy, which we'll do, using only his first name. So there's no biographical details or anything else about him or anything that he's doing. Just great to jump in and have a conversation with someone who's just wanting to open up and share and offer whatever hope and support he can along the way. So here's my interview with Tim. Welcome to the podcast, Tim. It's so good to have you here. 
Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate you letting me come chat with you. Yeah, I love having people in studio. Quite honestly, Zoom gets a little tiresome. If I wish I could fly all my guests in here. So this is just fantastic. Thanks for making time to come over here and here in St. George and spend some time with us. So Yeah, no, and your office is super nice too. I was actually noticing that from just sitting in the waiting room. I was like, wow, this is a really nice office. <laughs> well, thanks. Good. Yeah. So I want to introduce my listeners to to you through your story. Sure. I think that's a great way to start. And, you know, as we talk about what it really means to own your recovery and do it in a way that's really authentic, we first need to know who you are, where you've been and how you came to that process. So why don't you go and just introduce us to you and tell us your journey? Sure. Fair enough. So yeah, my name's Tim. I have lived a lot of different places over the country. So I was born in Louisiana, but I've I've moved on average about once a year my entire life. Oh, wow. So pretty adaptable to new situations, which I think has helped me personally be able to just kind of chat with people, which then kind of led me to my profession of being a marriage and family therapist. Also, I grew up in a pretty conservative community, pretty conservative home. My parents were both Baptists when I was younger. And then we converted to LDS faith around the age of like nine for me. Uh-huh. So we're all baptized and then became really active in the church. And I, th- I think I decided early on that I really enjoyed going to church. I enjoyed the camaraderie there. And I knew that there was a special spirit that was there, but I didn't really recognize what that meant until later on in my life. Oh, okay. And so then kind of fast forwarding a little ways, I got into pornography around like age 14. I think I'd have viewed it younger, like maybe nine or 10, but really had no clue what I was looking at at the time. So sure. really looking for it around age 14, 15. That's when my parents had a computer with internet because at the time we had a computer for a while, but didn't have internet. And then we finally got internet and started looking at images there. And and I don't really feel like it ever became a problem, or at least I don't feel like I noticed that it was a problem until I was in college. Mm. And I remember grabbing my roommate's laptop and looking like while they were out, you know, at school or a class or whatever. And so grabbing their laptop and looking at images that way. And I, I still, I don't really feel like I was ever super worried about it or like felt like I was doing something quote unquote wrong. I knew I wasn't doing really what I needed to be doing because I was hiding it from other people. But right, I don't think right. there's a lot of like insight at that moment to say, oh, let's stop this. Fast forward a little bit further, I went to my bishop to get ready to prepare for a mission. I sat down with him for a little while and eventually told him a lot of stuff about myself, told him that I was looking at pornography, the images that I was looking at, and he, I was kind of waiting for like, a, oh, well, that's something you need to work on, let's turn your papers in, and instead it turned on to a different path that said, let's go talk to a therapist, you're not ready to go on a mission. and. I don't know if I really recognized it then, but looking back, I feel like that's really when my shame started to cloak my view of who I was as a person, because it was no longer this, I'm doing something that I shouldn't be doing. It was, I am broken in some way, so I've got to go get myself fixed. That's how I looked at therapy at the time. I'd never gone to therapy. My mom had talked about going to therapy before, but I really didn't know what it was. So my bishop told me to do it. I went and did it. Went and talked to a therapist for about six months or so, went back to my bishop, told him I was healed, so to speak. And then he said, okay, yeah, let's get you on a mission. Went on a mission, came back, delved right back into pornography pretty quick. I came home and my mom, I actually came home December 27th and my mom had a Christmas present of a laptop for me. So it was kind of, you know, my, my introduction back into pornography at the time. Right. Again, I don't really feel like I had much 
insight as far as like how what my actions were doing, but I was viewing pornography daily or at least most like five, six days out of the week. And then so that I, you know, I got home when I was like 22-ish for my mission. I met my wife around 28 or so. I was 28 years old. And I told her a good amount of information, kind of just laid out on the table a lot of stuff that I was working through, a lot of stuff that I was going through, pornography, the types of images that I was viewing. And I think looking back now, I was thinking about this morning when I was preparing to come here. I wonder if that was really an opportunity for me to say, like, you can get out now if you need to. Oh, yeah. This is like, no one's going to want to be with me. So this is your out. And up until that point, I really had kind of given up on getting married. I really wasn't thinking I was going to get married. And I was okay with that. I'd kind of reached this point in my dating career where I just, I was doing something wrong or (laughs) trying to not, trying to do things that I shouldn't be doing, I guess. And I think a lot of it was shame-based. Like looking back now, I can recognize that, but then I didn't really know. So my wife agreed to continue our courtship and we got married and had a couple of kids. And I lied to her and told her that I was not looking at pornography anymore. So she thought things were okay, that we were all better. Our relationship was super tight and cohesive. And then currently, about a year and a half ago, she found a text message on my phone, which she confronted me about and was pretty upset about. It was me talking to another person that I shouldn't have been talking to and inappropriately. And at that point, you know, there was a lot of shame, guilt feelings myself. Obviously, she was really distraught with it lied to her about the intensity, I guess, of of what my sexual prowess was happening at that point or where I really was in my life. We kind of got busy through life, just a lot of life stuff that happened at that point. And so all of my recovery, so to speak, went on the back burner. Mm -hmm. And then about six months ago now, she found a couple other text messages and that's when life kind of halted for me and our relationship. And it became this, you know, I was I had two choices, either one, stay in my quote unquote addiction or to choose my family. And I had to choose my family at that point. And I remember making really conscious decision. I was about like 15 or 16 that I just, I wanted to get married in the temple. That was where my life wanted to, I wanted my life to be. And I remember flashing back to that moment six months ago thinking, this is what I've wanted my entire life. Like why give it up now? Even though the easier decision at that point was not looking internally. The easier decision was just continuing in my lifestyle that I was living and cutting ties with my family and not going back at that point. But the better decision for me was looking inward, recognizing that I had something that was inside of me that was propelling me to make these decisions that I was making and continuing down this road of looking at pornography and making decisions that were detrimental to myself. And now looking back, I recognize that I was a different person. And my wife has said some pretty poignant, not meaning to be hurtful, but still hurtful things of what my demeanor was like and my attitude. And she didn't quite know what was going on. And now she recognizes what was going on. And and I have a, she kind of has a reason for the way that I was acting, I guess, back then. And so I guess that kind of leaves me up to like present day right now. So I've, I'm in recovery. I'm also sober because I feel like there's a difference there in those two terms. I've tried recovery before, but I think more I was really just trying sobriety before, like white knuckling it, really holding on strong, trying to not do the deed, so to speak. And I think the thing that changed for me definitely was a motivating factor. That was a huge 
a huge propellant for me to move me forward in my in my recovery journey, but really looking inward, finding connectivity, finding the ability to be authentic with myself and who I am, and not just refraining from the act, so to speak, but really changing myself. Right. Well, first of all, thanks for sharing your story yeah. with my audience. I I know a lot of times people feel like, well, I'll I'll share my story when I'm fully fixed, right? <laughs> I'll share my story when I'm healed or when I cross the finish line and there's no such thing as you know and mm. as you've, you know, you've done your own work and worked with people and you're as a therapist, like there's there's no end point. We keep working on it, but I it's nice to have you here to talk about it when you're kind of in the middle of it, right? It's you're mm-hmm. you're 6 months off of the latest discovery, you're committing to renewing and recommitting to the recovery process. Yeah. So there's a lot here to, I guess, a lot of pieces that I'd like to go back and explore a little bit. You know, you talk about, first of all, you talk about where you are now. Maybe we'll just kind of work backwards where you talk about the difference between recovery and sobriety. Mm -hmm. And I know that we we often talk about people just want this to go away. It's damaging to themselves. It's damaging to their families. And so the emphasis is on just, and whether that's in, in a church setting or in a family setting, it's just like, let's just eliminate the behavior, extinguish it, and preferably never have to talk about this again. Yeah. And you're saying that that was your approach previously. It was just more like, let's just get rid of this, not look at it, just move on, carry on with life. What changed this time? Why, did, why is it different now? Why, you know, and what is different? Like, what are, you, what are you really understanding about recovery now versus sobriety? Yeah, good point. Because I really think I even had moments, and my wife even mentioned this, we're big fans of Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife, and she's has a lot of great stuff out there with couples and mm-hmm. i've my wife was even saying you know hey let's let's get into this course and let's do something with this let's listen to this podcast and i was so resistant because i just didn't want to look at myself i didn't want to really look at those deeper areas of my life and i i think part of it was pride too of thinking like nothing's really wrong with me you know the whole i can stop anytime if i want to adage that is not true right so I think the thing that's different, I think the thing that changed for me, I, I really do need to say that it's it was the propellant of the, you know, hurt my wife's eyes and really seeing the things that I could lose there was huge. Yep. Big motivating factor for myself. But I recognized I've gone through these other steps before. I went through the church's addiction recovery program, which I think has its place. I'm not knocking it anyways. It just wasn't really effective for me. It definitely opened my my eyes my mind to, oh, this is what recovery can look like. This is an option. These are some tools that I need to develop. But for the most part, not really what was going to work for me in my life at the time. And so I feel like I've gone through all these things. I went through therapy. I did the whole repentance thing with my bishop. I, you know, had gone on the mission, which I don't know, let's let's call it what it is. LDS culture says it's going to fix everything, right? If you go on your mission, it's just going to happen. If you get married, you're going to be fixed and everything's going to be wonderful. And I feel like I tried all the steps and nothing worked. And I think finally I was able to realize this is not going to work if I just continue to white knuckle it and try to hold on with with all of my might and just stop doing it. Because as I stopped doing it, the next time I would do it, I'd feel shame. And I would feel, I'm never going to be able to do this. This is the last time. I know this is the last time. You know, having all those internal conflicts with myself of saying, yes, this is, I can never do this again. And then of course, two times later doing it two more times thinking like, screw it, I'm just going to do it again. And I don't really care anymore. And going through that repetitive cycle, I was just tired of it. 
And I remember the other thing that really was helpful is the full disclosure to my wife of being able to say, hey, this is me. This is the rawness of who I am. These are all the inner workings of who I actually am. And I had had that moment with her, I think, before my mission or before my mission, before we got married. But I don't really feel like it was fully out in the open because I was still looking at pornography. So I was saying, hey, I've done this stuff in the past. This is kind of where I am, but I'm not doing it anymore. But I was, so I was lying. Mm -hmm. So now I have this really open, honest, raw, authentic divulsion that says, that's everything. These are all the things that I've done. These are all the the mistakes that I've made, and I, I don't have anything else left on the table. So that shame monster that feeds in that area of darkness and dishonesty and um, hiding yourself didn't really have anything else to feed on at that mm. point. And as, as hard as it was, it was so relieving to just get that off my chest and be able to say, finally, I have this sigh of relief that I've, I haven't been able to have a sigh of relief in 20 years, probably. You know, mm-hmm. I was finally able to really feel like I could move forward and I didn't have, I don't know, like I wanted to call an analogy of like the chains that were holding me yep. back. So I think that's was those two things, the honesty factor, the opening up, being able to really be authentic and raw with it, and then really looking inward on myself and trying to connect not only to my wife, but to myself, my background, who I am as a person, and not just you know holding on for dear life to try to fix it. I think that's a huge turning point when it, when it goes from sobriety to recovery. That's been my experience as well as when there's a shift from kind of control mode. I mean, I think, I think, you know, when, when you're saying culturally, sometimes we prescribe, you know, missionary service or getting married as like these events or these experiences that are going to stop an unwanted behavior or, or control something. It's a very much a control mindset and it's very externalized. It's, it's like, I enter into this thing and it's transactional and I should get this thing back and it's this trade-off and I really doesn't require anything of me except just to step into it, right? Mm-hmm. It's just, I think that's sort of the, the misunderstanding and maybe a, a, some kind of a cultural myth that families pass on or, or church members or just, you know, well-meaning people that want things to get better, but it's incomplete. Mm-hmm. And so, but what you're talking about, what I'm hearing is it's like you move from this control mode into surrender mode. Mm-hmm into a mode of, I'm going to now not do it my way, not like, you know, so I'm going to give up all my secrets. I'm going to give up, you know, all my interior and let my wife and other people see what's really going on. So I'm not going to control that message or the narrative anymore. But then you're also going to start making contact with parts of you that have been disowned or ignored or compartmentalized that were maybe too overwhelming. And that's a form of surrender because you don't know where that's going to take you. Right. And recovery now starts to, I mean, I, I think of the word recover, like if, if I've lost something, I'm going to go find it. I'm going to go recover it, mm. recovery. And so that's so much of what you're doing. You're, you're searching for all the things that you've kept secret. Now you're also searching for the things you've lost contact with and you're trying to get connected to. And it's not putting this on anybody else. I mean, when you talk about owning your recovery, it's really about, I'm going to look more deeply, more clearly at how I got myself here. And what I, what I see is it's, it's not from this judgmental, critical, shameful place. It's a place of curiosity and, and 
you know, once you've taken care of the basic boundaries and been accountable and handled, you know, the responsibility you have to your wife and others, this other part is really your journey. Right. Right. Is that what it's been like for you, Tim? Yeah, for sure. And I'm, I'm glad that you colored that pretty well. I think that you uh, painted a really good picture of, of like with the whole recovery part yeah. as well. I also think that with, this wasn't in the beginning, so don't think I'm some like magical person that this, because I, I remember listening to podcasts like this and thinking like, yeah, right, it's not that easy because this it's not easy. And I'm not saying it's easy whatsoever. I'm not saying that I, you know, had some like magical potion that I drank either that like just one day I woke up and everything was better. This is years of really trying like yeah. over and over again and just failing, 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 failing and daily failing. And then like seeing other people in my life thinking, how, are, how do they do this? How are they working through all of these things? And then, yeah, working as a therapist even and seeing other people in recovery for other things like alcoholism and drug abuse and thinking like they don't overcome it, right? How, are they, how am I going to do this? I think what the question that you're asking though is I, uh, it took me a little while to really get to this point, but I had to realize that I wasn't doing this for my wife anymore. I wasn't, yeah, that maybe that was the initial motivating factor for yeah. me, but I couldn't do this just for my kids, for my wife. I had to do this for me. And at first it felt almost a betrayal to myself because I mean, addiction's a friend sometimes, right? It's very close to you. It's very, comforting. It's a coping mechanism. So saying, I am doing this for myself is like, well, what have you been doing for the past 25 years? Why have you been doing this over and over again and allowing yourself to be in this area of your life and being so closed off from the areas of your life that you want to be a part of? Why have you done so much and you can't, and now all of a sudden you're doing it for yourself? So that was kind of a betrayal at first. And then after I realized like, I just... I can't I can't do this with my wife as the only motivating factor to get me out of this. If I was, then eventually, and it's it's kind of where we are now in our relationship, things are a lot better for us. We feel like we're more connected. We feel like we're closer to one another. We our our relationship is a lot better than it used to be, uh, even before the disclosure happened. And we're still not out of the the woods yet for sure. But yeah. she's become I would say a little complacent as far as like checking up on me and seeing how things are going. She doesn't feel as nervous and as worried about things anymore, which is super awesome and helpful for me. But had she let her guard down and I wasn't doing it for me anymore, I'd be right back into it. Oh yeah. You'd be like, oh sweet. Like- I don't have the guard dog anymore. Yeah. My main motivator doesn't care. So I guess we're good, right? right. If, you're, if you're hinging all this on her. And I realized that in the beginning too, mm -hmm. and that's what I would talk to everyone else. If you can hear me, like for sure, say if the initial motivator is something external, great, but you have to find an internal motivator. Mm -hmm. If you need that external motivator to start you on the journey and to really create that spark for you, awesome. But then you've got to find something else that internally that says, I can move past this because I want to move past it. Now, I'm in a group right now of recovery and I... There was this guy that was the other day that said something along the lines of like, you know, he's not married and the other of, other of us are. And he said something along the lines of like, yeah, I mean, you guys have your wives to go home to and I don't really have anybody. Like, why do I need to worry about this? And I said, because it's your recovery. Yeah. Yeah. It's not mine. I'm, and don't come here for me either. Mm -hmm. He even said something like, yeah, I feel like I'm, I'm, because he's pretty heavy into his addiction right now. And he's like, yeah, I feel like I'm coming here. BSing you guys. And I'm like, no, like you're coming here for you. Don't come here for me. If I'm not here next week, right. you have to come here still. If 
so-and-so across the hall from me is not here next week, you still have to come. It's your recovery. And if it doesn't become your recovery, it's just not going to work. Right. And what's so interesting is that, you know, what what shifted for you, it sounds like from this external motivator of, well, I got to keep my family together. I've got to, you know, I've got to be compliant with, you know, the church or even God or things like that. Like what really connected you back to your, to owning this for you was, was an experience you had when you were like 14, 15 years old before your wife was ever in the picture or anything else. And you were connecting deeply to those values Mm -hmm. that of like the kind of life you wanted, which was, I want a life that, you know, in terms of the LDS faith is temple worthy, meaning that you're living by a certain set of standards of fidelity and commitment to God and, and so on. But it's a, it's a life and a lifestyle that you were very clear about as a young person that you knew really meant something to you. And so that's very much, you know, that very much predates your wife. Yeah, for sure. And so is it motivated by her directly? No, I think for you, it's like, that's the kind of person I want to be. That's the kind of life I want to live. Yeah. And that was enough to kind of help you get some traction in making this your own. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. I remember we do some Apple uh, like workouts. They have like Apple fitness workouts and some of the motivation or no meditation ones are always like, find your intention and even as a therapist, I was like, what the heck's that mean? Like, I, don't know what the, I just want to sit here and relax and stretch my body. I don't want to, you're talking about an attention. And then finally I realized like, it's, that's the motivation. Like, yeah. what, am I, what am I doing this for? Yeah. Am I doing this more for just my body? Am I doing this to become whole? Am mm-hmm. I doing this so that I can find some kind of, I don't know, existential freeness from, yep. from this world or whatever, then whatever it is, you've got to find something else. And I think that's where I'm glad you pointed that out. I don't think I really ever made that connection that it it was that younger self of mine that was able to to come forth and say like, hey, remember this? And I remember, I think this is, needs to be really clear too. Like I remember praying and I know there's a quote by Sherry Dew that's something along the lines of, you know, if it, if getting married were as easy as reading the scriptures and fasting and praying, like I'd have Nephi's lined up my door all the time. Um, and it's something along those lines. That's probably a little paraphrased, but if, if recovery was, was just as nut as much as fasting and praying, reading the scriptures, going to church, doing the repentance process, like it'd be, we could do that, right? I can yeah. do those primary answer things. Yeah. You can control the outcomes for sure. Yeah. But it's not just about that. And I remember thinking I'm doing all the right things. Why am I still in this Mm -hmm. funk? Why am I in this shame cycle? Why am I still doing all of these things? I pray every night, please take this from me. You know, I've heard people say, give this to God and just let go of it. And I thought I was doing that. I thought I was saying all the right words for it, but I think there was still this internal shame. And I, I, I relate shame to, uh, the, the character from Spider-Man that I don't remember his name, but the character from Spider-Man that has like all the black tar over him, like he's covered in, he's not, it's not really black tar. It's like a, a suit, but like Spider-Man takes on the suit at one time and like can't get it off. Of oh, him. Venom. Is it Venom? Is that yeah, who it I think is? so. Yeah. My kids will be so disappointed in me that I got maybe the wrong name because I'm not super into their <laughs> Marvel universe. <laughs> no. Yeah. I think it's Venom. Yeah. That yeah. sounds actually right. So he's like trying to get it off of him and it's just like tar. Like he just, it yeah. all like grows back together and he just can't get it off of him. Yeah. And that's how I think of when I think of shame. Like I, mm. I think of this like suit almost that you carry with you 
And as much as you try to physically, earlier you said control, right? Mm -hmm. As much as you try to control it and get it off of you, it just doesn't work. It's when you let go and when you're able to really be free and say, okay, I'm not going to control this anymore. I'm not going to be in control of making myself stop, but I am going to be authentic. I'm going to be real. I'm going to be genuine with myself, genuine with the people around me. Another factor that really helped me, I think, in the beginning was I couldn't, I can't tell little white lies because then those little white lies will turn into really big, gray, dark, black lies. Yeah. And so I can't even say little lies anymore. I can't get into that place. And it's it's actually pretty good because my kids always tell me, dad, I don't believe you. That's your, that's your lying voice. And I'm like, what's my lying voice? I don't even like my sarcastic voice. And it's usually when I'm just joking around with them, like they'll say, Hey, can we have ice cream? I'm like, no, no ice cream for the rest of your life. Dad, that's your lying voice. Okay. That's my lying voice, I guess. <laughs> so, so I, I just need to keep them around with me all the time. That's right. They'll pretty... smoke it out. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so if I just keep, keep around with them all the time. But yeah, I could I can't lie anymore. I can't just if I do, then it it becomes this bigger lie. Yep. And I heard a quote sometime too. I probably should have researched this before I came in here, but that said if you uh if you never lie, then you never have to remember anything, something along those lines. That's right. Um and it's so true. Yeah. Right? Like you, you It's a lot of work to keep oh up a double life. Yeah. And that's exactly what I was doing. Yeah. I was keeping up this double life, this this tandem partnership with my addict self that is gone, luckily, for now. Yeah. Yeah. And there's such a, there, there is kind of an arrogance too, right? In like maintaining a double life. Uh, it makes me think of the, the singer songwriter Mason Jennings has a great line from one of his songs that says, I thought I could live two lives while the while other suckers just lived one, you oh, know? Yeah, wow. And, and there, there's kind of this sense of like control and I've got this and I can, I can have it both ways. But living one life is just so much more freeing. It's just so much more easy. Yeah. Once you Way get that ball energy. rolling. <laughs> right. But but yeah, you talk about surrendering, letting go, opening up, being authentic, letting people, the people that need to know, see it. And and there's just so much less to manage. Your mm-hmm. energy is 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 now being used for other things. And you don't realize how much energy goes into oh, yeah. it's trying crazy. to manage the shame and keep the suit, you know, just all mm-hmm. that stuff you're talking about. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I remember even thinking after all of this, like I, I was really addicted to my phone. I can use that word pretty pretty strongly yeah. there. And I was tied to it, like just tethered 100% uh-huh. to it. I would never leave it alone. I was always afraid my wife was going to find something on it. Oh. Sometimes I'd even take it in the shower with me. Like it was just always this constant connection to my body. And now I lose it all the time. I swear I'd like leave it places and Mm -hmm. I have to really think about it. I have an Apple watch. So I like do the little ping thing and find it, you know, downstairs or something where I left it last. And, and even just that was a, a perfect analogy of how freeing it is to be able to say, I'm not tied to that part of my life anymore. I can leave my phone wherever I want it to be because anybody can find it. And I really don't care. Yeah. It was even getting to the point where I thought about changing my passcode and again, lying, trying to come up with some kind of, oh, I've got to do it for work. You know, it's a privacy issue, being a therapist, I have to do that. And luckily I never did because that's just one more lie I would have had to confess to. But yeah, it was that even just that piece right there it took so much energy to hide my phone, to hide the things on my phone and then multiply that times every single instance that of 
what kind of story can I come up with this lie? What kind of story can I come up with this situation? Why wasn't I there? How much time did I spend at this point? And all of those things. No wonder anxiety just kind of rides with me like a constant companion as well. Mm -hmm. Just trying to hide all of that stuff is so much energy spent there. Oh, it is. It is. Yeah. I want to, I want to go back to this idea. So, so when you talk about previously all these years of trying things that, that, as you put it, didn't work, right? When you were trying to control this and, and keep it from happening. As you look back on all those years, well, I guess we'll put it 20 years on it, 25 years, versus how when you really surrendered six months ago and said, I'm going to do things differently, I'm going to open up, I'm going to you know connect to a group, do a disclosure, like really start to work this process in a different way, in a more open, humble, surrendered way. Do you look back on all those years and feel like that was wasted time? Or do you feel like some of that has really brought you to where you are and has helped you? How do you make sense of all those years? Yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up because I think that's super important for everyone that's listening to is it's not, I don't think it's wasted years for me at all. I think it really set up a foundation for me. I think that I learned something from every single person that I made, made contact with. I mean, I was in a the addiction recovery program for, I don't know, maybe like four or five months or so met a couple of really close friends that I kept in contact with for the period of time that I lived close to that area. And then I was in a another group. I think it was like, we actually started it. I think it was like Sexaholics Anonymous or something. Mm-hmm. And they, they follow the, you know, kind of like the big book of, yeah. of SA or whatever. And even then, you know, I felt really connected to those individuals and I feel like I learned things from them. Definitely learned things that I did not want part of my life ever. I learned that there were, I remember one of the mentors or whatever was saying, you need to have a separate journal. You need to be able to be authentic. You need to have like a lockbox and put your journal in your lockbox. Your wife will always find it. She'll always look at it. And then there's part of me that thinks, if I need to be honest, why would I hide that part of my life from my wife? Like, why would I, if I really want to be this authentic, open genuine person, you know, so at that, that point I was like, I don't want that. I, I would never hide those things. And I'd feel almost even weird about hiding those things from her. And I don't know about you, but like when I read my journal, there's sometimes I'm thinking like, oh, my kid's going to read this later down the road, you know, like I <laughs> right. find it and like, oh, should I really write this? And so sometimes I'll, you know, I'll kind of write in a code or whatever, but still, you know, pouring out my heart onto the pages. So I think I learned a lot from all of those different aspects of recovery that I was in. I've seen several therapists throughout my life and each of them have been really helpful and beneficial. Some yeah. of them I didn't love being around, or at least I didn't really feel super connected with them. Uh, there was one therapist though that I remember her approach was, you know, why why do you have to label yourself as an addict? Why is that such a strong point for you? Because for me, that just says shame as it is, right? So shame is like, I am something as opposed to like guilt is I did these things. Mm -hmm. And so if you're talking about getting rid of shame, like maybe we need to get rid of this label. And so even since then, I've had this really difficult time saying like, uh, I'm an addict because being an addict is kind of like being a boyfriend or being a husband. Like that comes with certain things. It comes with certain criteria that you have to meet. And being an addict means like powerless, like, you know, I have to have other people to help me. I can't do this on my own. And maybe in the beginning, I can't jumpstart it on my own, but 
I have to recover on my own. I can't rely on the people that I'm in recovery with right now. Like we have a little group me through my recovery program and we communicate with each other. But if I really need something, it takes them like two or three hours to get back to me, you know? Mm -hmm. So if I'm super triggered and like in the moment, right? It's that's not the place I need to go. So I can't do it. I can do it alone. I shouldn't be mandated to do it with other people. And I think that's what, what addiction tells us is you have to have other people to help you through this process. So yeah, I think I've learned stuff throughout the whole journey. I think I've definitely taken bits and pieces of it, a little smorgasbord of what's helpful for me and what's not. And there's a guy right now that's in our program that's struggling. And I think my intuition, at least with him, is that it's really difficult for him to have this standardized way of doing, quote unquote, the program. Uh-huh. And I told him today, even this, that you know, sometimes it's not going to be exactly how everyone else's is. Your recovery is your recovery. It's not Joe Blow across the street. It's not John Smith across the street. It's your recovery. You've got to adapt it for you. And that's, I think, the biggest takeaway from all of that process is what's worked for me mm-hmm. and what definitely was not going to work for me or what I didn't really want to work for me. Yeah. I think it takes a lot of, I don't know, I think it takes a lot of courage to just quiet everything down and really get clear on the stuff that's actually helping and not helping. And for you, you know, the label addict is not helpful and you know people and I know people for them that that word is very, a very big part of their recovery. It creates accountability. It helps them connect to other people, whether that's jumpstarting or long-term recovery. I've seen that word get used both directions where it feels harmful to some people and feels really supportive. Mm -hmm. And so people often ask, well, what do you think about that term? And I'm like, well, it's very subjective. No, what do you think about that? (laughs) (laughs) It's really like, it doesn't almost matter what I think about it. I think as long as people are connecting and doing the work internally, and I agree with you, I think that's a really great distinction to say, yes, we need people, like we're social creatures and we we are going to do better in community and recovery. I mean, you're in a group. So obviously you believe in your opening up to your wife and you're connecting with God and you're trying to build connection, but the deep driving motivation has to be this place of, do I want this? I know Mark Laser, the, he passed away some years ago, but I, I remember him saying one time in a training I was at, he said, you know, my first question to guys when I sit down with them is, you know, do you want to get well? Mm. He's that's a yes or no question. Mm. That's it. Do you want to get well? Right. And He says, however they answer that question tells me so much about where they are in their process. So sometimes they'll say, well, it depends, you know, my wife or, you know, my childhood or this, and he says, there's all kinds of like excuses and reasons and and justifications. And he says, and he goes, but what I'm looking for is a simple yes or no. No means no, I don't want to get well. I want to keep this. He says, and that says a lot. And we have to talk about that. But a yes really does answer a lot of other questions in terms of what people are willing to do and how far they'll take this. So I I really appreciate that distinction of, yes, we do need other people. I'm not powerless. I have to be able to make decisions. I have to use my ability to choose. Those are all critical elements. And I love that you've been able to embrace those as part of your journey and you know what those are. Yeah. Even if the guy next to you is saying, you know, I, I have to use the word addict for me. It helps keep me accountable and humble and et cetera, and all these other pieces. I don't believe there's a formula for every single person that does this. Right. I think we we develop programs and structures and guides and principles, but we're dealing with humans here. Yeah. And there's lots of ways to do this. Right. We're all different. That's right. Yeah. And I agree with that. I thought I, this is my recovery and that's all that's I right. can speak to. Yeah. Even when I'm in a group, I never say things like we, because even though I know 
And especially from a therapeutic standpoint, I know we're all in the same boat. I know we've all done the same things. I know we've gone through the same steps, the same heartaches, the same crying moments. We've all spent energy on this, but I can only attest to my recovery and what's worked for me and what's working currently for me. It may change, right? A six months down the road, I may have some crazy thing happen to me that's super stressful and I may jump back into my addiction. Let's hope that's not the case. But I can only say today, this is what's going on. This is how I'm feeling. This is where I am in my life. And this is what's worked for me. Hopefully that can work for other people as well, because I would have loved to have listened to a podcast like this 10 years ago and found something that said, that's what I have to do. That's the only way that I would, this is going to work for Mm -hmm. me. And I would be in a much different part of my life right now. Granted, I hate saying I regret things because I don't like... Yeah, you want to learn from all your mistakes and experiences, yeah. Right, exactly. And so I I can't say that I would do it all over again, but I definitely am a stronger person, I know, because of it. But if I could have turned it around, I I don't know if I really would have wanted to go through the last, you know, six months that I've gone through right now. If If a podcast like this would have worked for me back in the day, it would have been awesome. Yeah, it's so it's so interesting. I love I love that you're open to the fact that what you're thinking and feeling and how you're structuring things now could change. Mm-hmm. I totally agree with that. I mean, how many of us still really do things the exact same way we did them five years ago or ten years ago? In a lot of cases, we're evolving and changing and hopefully yeah. learning and and adapting. Having all these like singer songwriter lyrics come to my head today, I don't know why, but hey, I'm big into music, so maybe that's maybe that's me bringing my vibe. In there this, you so. go. <laughs> so I'm thinking of uh, one of my favorite songs is uh, Martin Sexton has a great song called "In the Journey," and it, kind of the main line in there is "In the Journey we find that there's no destination," mm-hmm. and and the the whole song is about his own recovery from and a, him helping a friend and his own recovery from alcoholism and that sentiment that you know, if we're just trying to do this so that we can arrive somewhere mm. and you can get to a place where it's good enough, then I think that that's when the, the self-deception starts. I really think that, you know, where you're saying, look, I'm six months into this phase of my recovery, right? I've been right. working at it and trying different things for years. I could say I made it, right? I've done right. this. Oh, I'm, I'm finished. Right. I'm ready. I but can I, do anything. Right. But you're like, okay, like I'm checking in here at six months and this is where I'm at. And if I were to, you know, re-record this with you again in a year, two years, we'd be having a different conversation about right. things you've learned. Yeah. And, you know, I, there's no destination for me or for you or for any of us. Like we're, we're continually progressing and growing and, and evolving, learning and settling into that, I think makes a huge difference in terms of giving up all this control. Mm-hmm. Have you found that for you? Settling into like the recovery process of the, the Yeah. The fact that this is a long-term process, oh, yeah, that this sure. is not a destination. Yeah. And I think that's what it was before, right? And the 30 days we create new habits or whatever the thing is. Yeah. yeah I, I could do that. I could white knuckle this for 30 days and be totally <laughs> yeah. better. But yeah, I definitely have recognized, I even tell my clients that the same thing. Like it's, goals are great, but they cannot be finite. They've got to be a direction as yeah, opposed to this I like that. end journey mm-hmm. because then that's when the shame is going to hit is when I didn't reach that goal. You know, I didn't pay off that debt. I didn't uh, lose that weight. I didn't quit Dr. Pepper like I said I was going to. If you say though, I'm getting into a healthier lifestyle, right? That could be the Dr. Pepper part. It could point you a certain direction yes. and you're just taking steps toward that because yeah, none of us are finished. No, I, I hopefully am not. I've got to still, I've got a lot of, a lot to work on. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. I mean, that's, 
And for some people that that message can be discouraging. It can feel hopeless, like, you know, especially if you're maybe a, a to-do list person or a, a kind of a move and a shaker, I don't know, like kind of alpha, right? Like I, mm-hmm. I'm going to conquer this or overcome this or fix this. What's the bottom line? How do we just, that can be a really discouraging sentiment that that right. we're just in a journey, not a destination. And but I, I find it very comforting, actually. I feel like a lot of permission to just learn and grow and stay curious. And of course, be accountable for the things that I do that impact other people mm-hmm. and myself. And you know I, I want to be honest and accountable and, and show up in the ways that are healthy, but there's room to flex and grow and change. Yeah. And that's really what recovery is. And I think that's the paradigm shift that some people are going to have to have is mm-hmm. going from this list mindset yeah. to... Being okay to breathe, being in the moment. My wife had a really difficult time with the program that we're in right now because we're both in it. She really wanted to know the 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 steps. What do I do? How long is this yeah. going to be? And I think if she was on the other end of it, it would have been a lot difficult, more difficult for her. Meaning, if she was on the um, you know the addiction kind of side of it, sure. But yeah, if it's really hard to have this mindset of you know in sixty days everything's going to be better. It may be better, but everything's not going to be better. You're not going to be out of the woods. It's You could be clear, right? Things could be better for you, but just not the best that it's going to be. And I do the same thing with my kids, like the whole good, better, best idea. You know, I, I don't need your room to be best every single time, every day. I need it to be good. I need to not trip over things when I walk into your room. <laughs> so if you can keep it good most of the time, you know, once a week or once every two weeks, we'll, we'll make it the best that it can be. But every day, I love that. just keep it good. Yeah. And that's the journey mindset as opposed to this finite, everything has to be perfect. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. There's a lot of permission in that to just continue improving and, and being open. I, I'm reading a book by James Hollis, who's a, who's a world renowned uh, Jungian psychologist and 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 he's he's 82 years old and in the book oh, wow. he he basically just says he goes the older i get the more i learn the more i realize i don't even know very much yeah. like there's just sort of this the more layers he uncovers he's just always continuously surprised yeah by what he maybe doesn't see or is recognizing and i think there's a real humility in that and saying that i'm going to keep being the best version of myself but i'm totally open to the fact that there's so much i'm going to learn along yeah. this way and i I love that we get to check in with you at this point that you you popped in here to to you know let people hear what it's like to have worked so hard and then to have some big shifts and then be in a better place for now and then just your honesty about that your authenticity around what's going well and what you're still working on and and just what that's like I mean this is the hope people need is that you can be in a process and you can still be growing and you can still have a great have great things happening in your life even though you're working hard at repairing things yeah yeah I appreciate it I'm Grateful that we were able to chat too. I and it was kind of a whim that just we just started chatting and and we're able to yeah. to meet and even just being on vacation this week and being able to come down and chat with us <laughs> a little bit. So I'm glad it all worked out and hopefully something from this can help someone. I, that would be a really great hope of mine. Yeah. So let, let's just wrap up here. Like if you know if you were to sit down with with a guy that is early in this process and hasn't really done much at all, and you could sit down, put your arm around him, like what would you want him to know? Yeah, good question. I, I really uh, just it, it, like I think what we talked about a little bit ago, and kind of the common thread throughout my recovery process is that this is just a process. It's just a journey. Mm-hmm. We're just starting out, and we don't have to be this end perfect, finite person by any means. I know sometimes it's hard because society dictates that of us, and the people around us can dictate that for us. But 
ultimately we've got to be able to just take it one step at a time. Yeah. Even if, and in my experience, and again, we can't speak for every, every betrayed partner, but in my experience, many of the, the women that I've worked with who have been betrayed, they just want to know that their husband, their partner is in a process. Mm. And they can, they seem to be able to tolerate that better than pretending he's perfect right, or doing nothing. Yeah. Right. But this, this kind of the engagement, the process, the work, as long as it's, you know, forward movement, trending upward, yeah. I think it can create a lot of, a lot of security and hope, even though it's messy. Yeah. And if I can add one more thing, just uh-huh. that along the same lines that if you, if you're doing this for yourself, then in the end, you're going to be a better person and you being a better person is going to make you a better husband. It's going to make you a better right. father. Right. It's going to make you a better carpenter, whoever, whatever. Yeah, that's you right. Have. If you're doing this just for your wife or just so that your family will leave you alone or not judge you, then you're not really changing yourself. It's mm-hmm. all a facade at that point. And we're still keeping up those huge walls that are very boundary driven that say, please don't look at me. I've done too many things that I don't like to do. So please just look at this other person, this husband that's really good. If you're just you and you're authentically you, then life looks way different and people are going to love you. My wife loves me for who I am and I can't ever repay her for that, but I can't ever be the person that I think that she wants me to be, I can only be me. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of energy stuff we were talking about earlier is that uh, I can't spend my energy on trying to be someone I'm not. Right. Or be somewhere you're not. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And if she can't tolerate or doesn't is not interested in being with you like that, you have to surrender that and let her, right? Yeah. Let, let her make that decision. Okay but that. being where you are is, is the only place you can be. I love that. Thank you for uh, for clarifying that. And Thank you for being here. Thanks yeah. for your story. Thanks for the work you're doing. And I, of course, wish you all all the best as you continue forward, rebuilding your own life and your marriage and your family and helping other people do the same. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. Thanks. Once again, Tim, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. It was just great to have you on here. And I really do appreciate your willingness to come on here and just share your story. You're in the middle of your process. And it's just great to hear from somebody who's just trying to work and figure things out. And I also do appreciate all of you for listening. It's just great to know that there's an audience out there who's listening and making room to hear and connect with these great guests and also just committed to your own healing. Whether you're doing this for yourself or for someone you love, hopefully it's benefiting you in some way. As always, please spread the word. We want people to find this great life-changing information. And the ways you can do that are by posting a review on wherever you listen to podcasts, leaving a rating, And then, of course, social media and just telling somebody about it. Forward someone this episode or another episode. And come drop me a line on social media. I'm on Instagram and Facebook. And you can find me on my website, fromcrisis2connection.com, where you'll find past episodes of the podcast, my weekly column, and of course, online courses and other resources to support you in your healing. Thanks so much for being here every week. I look forward to hanging out with you, and I'll see you guys in the next episode. Mm